Welcome to the Human Pulse. I'm your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. Today's podcast actually is about mental cell lymphoma. And I'd like you to really uh, enjoy the podcast I'm going to have today with you because I'm hosting Dr. Cami Maddox, who is a hematologist at The Ohio State University. Um, um, you know, again, uh, Cami, Dr. Maddox has done an amazing work in the uh, field of lymphoid malignancies in general, as well as in the field of uh, mantle cell lymphoma and CLL. She has worked with the cooperative groups and has continued to publish groundbreaking work in prestigious journals to tell us how best to treat patients with this disease. Uh, she is a professor in the Division of Hematology, uh, and um, uh, again, I couldn't be more delighted and honored than to have Dr. Cami Maddox on the Hemang Pulse. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Nabatan. This is uh, Shadi, exciting. Shadi, no doctor. Hold okay, on. Okay, Shadi. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I'm Cami Maddox. I am at the James Cancer Hospital at Ohio State University, or I should say the Ohio State University, the, the Ohio State University. Um, I, in my clinical practice and clinical research interests are in B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas and Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, I see patients and do clinical research in mostly in the form of clinical trials, uh, in these malignancies. I currently serve as our lymphoma, um, program director. So a lot of my work now has um, transitioned more into helping mentor our junior faculty and um, in, uh, you know, their research and clinical trials. I have uh, been on the Alliance Lymphoma Committee um, for 10 years now and have done uh, work there, um, mostly in mantle cell lymphoma trials um, within uh working on um, frontline uh, mantle cell lymphoma and then through the Alliance Foundation and relapse refractory mantle cell lymphoma. Well, your fingerprints um, on the world of mantle cell lymphoma <laughs> are well known. That's why I have you uh, on the show. But you also do a lot of administrative work and you're going to tell us the history of what got you interested in this. Yeah, I do do a lot of um, administrative work. So I actually became interested in hemalignancies as a um, resident. I did my residency at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, um, and worked with uh, the lymphoma CLL group there and uh, was just really, honestly, the, the patients that I treated on those services just thought the diseases were fascinating. Um, helping the patients felt really satisfying, and then got into a few clinical research projects there. Um, and it was funny when I was um, a medical student, I actually was interested in oncology, and that just came based on second year medical school rotations. I worked with an oncologist, and I just thought his his work was fascinating his connection to patients was fascinating. Um, and I just wanted to be him. So I, I knew I wanted to do oncology. Um, I actually, I'll even take it back to my first year of medical school. I, um, I lived with my best friend who is now an OBGYN. And after a biochemistry lecture on cancer, we went home and I said, this is so fascinating. I imagine that everybody has to, has to want to be an oncologist. And she's like, no, nobody wants to do that. 
Um, but that's what prompted me to do clinical rotations with this um, gentleman who was, like I said, just fantastic. And I wanted that patient connection. I struggled a little bit with what kind of oncology I wanted to do, but I really felt, you know, most at home in internal medicine and medical oncology, had an interest going into residency and potentially lung cancer versus like blood cancer. Um, and then just my experiences um, at Mayo with the lung cancer doctor I worked with were great, but really the patients and um, diseases and hematology just, you know, fascinated me. And that um, connection there led me to Ohio State for my fellowship. And, you know, that was, that's, this is a fantastic place for that. Yeah, and and um, really the, the human connection with patients, what you just, it really is true thing in oncology, hematology, and it is very special. I know that there are these special connections with, in, in, with, between physicians and and patients, but there's something special when it comes to hemonic patients. You're absolutely correct. So, Cami, uh, I want to talk about mantle cell lymphoma, and I want to start by just level setting a little bit. Every few years, the WHO comes on with new classification. They get bored a little bit. As the science advances, we know a little bit more, and we get a new paper about lymphoid classification. A recent one came out in 2022, which was the newest one uh, since the 2016 uh, paper. In mantle cell, anything new with this classification that is worth sharing with our listeners? I mean, I think the big thing probably really came with the mantle cell when we distinguish mantle cell, leukemic, non-nodal mantle cell versus you know, classic mantle cell lymphoma, right? And that really recognized that there's this population of patients that behaves more um, somewhat, you know, often like a CLL. Um, and those are patients that when you think about it clinically, uh, they're patients that often can be observed at diagnosis. They often, um, you know, when they develop complications from treatment, they frequently acquire, acquire genetic abnormalities and can have very aggressive disease at that time. But I think, you know, recognizing that there are patients who have very indolent disease courses and can go without treatment is yeah. important. How often do you encounter a patient where you kind of feel comfortable? This is CLL-ish kind of thing. I'm going to just watch this patient for a while. Is that common? Not very common? So I would say that, um, I mean, mantle cell itself is not super common, right? But I mean, I don't think it's not uncommon. I think there's actually two different populations of patients that you encounter like this. So one is the actual true non-nodal mantle cell lymphoma, right? So those are the patients that present with peripheral blood involvement, um, bone marrow involvement. And most often those patients are found incidentally, right? They have a high white count when they go to the doctor for screening or for a complication, it's noted. Their other counts are okay and they can be um, observed. Mm -hmm. Occasionally you have these patients who are symptomatic from splenomegaly or who have TP53 mutations and they're not diagnosed until, you know, that time when they present with, um, you know, bad disease, quite honestly, um, with that leukemic presentation, but TP53 mutations. 
I think the other presentation that we see that is probably a little bit more common and historically would have always been treated until, you know, 10 years ago or a little more when um, Peter Martin's paper came out in observation is these classic mantle cell lymphoma patients that have you know, typically tend to be asymptomatic, low tumor burden, normal LDH, um, fairly normal counts. They're, they're diagnosed, and these are patients, I think, many years ago that were just automatically treated, but we've recognized that we can now monitor these patients, um, and they can go without treatment for some time um, as well. Let's start with frontline therapy for mental cell. I mean, when a patient walks in and again, the diagnosis is, is confirmed, we're not having issues with the diagnosis. In the CLL world, we, we were taught about risk stratifying folks based on cytogenetics and, and other elements. Is that the same with mental cell? When a patient comes with mental cell, you have the diagnosis. Do you need additional testing to see like high risk, intermediate risk, poor? Like, is that happening or not really? It is happening. It's, I think so. There's different things that we look at, right? So one is just the MIPI score, which you're going to get by the patient factors and um, their staging, their lab work. Um, on the biopsy, I think that it's important to get the KI-67 because we know that's prognostic. It doesn't. So let me step back. The thing about mantle cells, we have a lot of prognostic factors. There's not a lot that it's predict us to tell us how to treat patients, right? In CLL, I think it's more clear, like you have this, this is the therapy you might benefit from. You have this, you know, maybe you have more options. Whereas in mantle cell, I think the one we know there are patients that do worse with standard therapies, including even some of our newer therapies like the BTK inhibitors. But unfortunately, for the most part, we don't really, we can't say, well, these therapies are better for you. I think, you know, or I, I would say that TP53 is the one area where I think it's important to get that information. I think, you know, ideally you have, you know, the next generation sequencing for the mutation, um, because I don't think, you know, that doesn't always match to the TP53 uh, expression by IHC. This is an area where we know those patients don't do well with standard therapy. Can we say we have therapies that they do much better with? No, I can't really honestly say that, but I do think, you know, these are patients that should not be treated with aggressive chemoimmunotherapies and transplant if you're going to use transplant because we know they don't do well and that adds a lot of toxicity. Ideally, those are patients that are going to be put on a clinical trial. I think the exception to that is it does look like, you know, the chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapies are effective in those, those, those high-risk patients. Um, but that's not a frontline therapy. Um, stepping, so just stepping back then, in addition to the TP53, I think that it's important to get KI67 um, on the biopsy. And then we know that patients with complex cytogenetics have a higher risk disease. Um, again, these are all things that I think, unfortunately, don't necessarily tell you one treatment or another, but it does help you counsel the patient and, you know, think about um, treatment sequencing. So frontline therapy, um, I'm going to tell you that back in the day, back in the day, we were just taught literally that your goal is induction, some kind of chemotherapy, and take the patient for an autologous stem cell transplant. 
uh, I'm going to assume that this is not the case for everybody. So take us through what do you do when a patient comes in for the front line so you could determine, A, what type of chemotherapy you are going to give, and B, are you going to actually proceed for an autologous transplant or not? I think that's a great question. And I think to some extent, we still are back in the day, but we're in the process of transitioning from that or potentially transitioning. And I think it's much, um, you know, more of a patient discussion. And I think probably in the future, we'll see even more different. So, I mean, I think since I've been in practice, a lot of what we've done is take a patient, they come to you, you know, you're going to counsel them on therapy, you look at their age and comorbidities, and are they going to be a candidate for consolidation with autologous stem cell transplant? If they are, and they, you know, ideally, you're taking the, those TP53 patients out of this equation, you're counseling them on more intensive therapies, which there's different options. Uh, in consideration of consolidation transplant, and then rituximab maintenance. Whereas a patient who's older has comorbidities, um, you're talking to them about less intensive chemoimmunotherapy. I, to some extent, would say you also do look at disease factors. If you have a patient who is maybe younger or borderline age, but they have a really low risk, um, you know, low KI-67, no high-risk disease features, maybe you're just talking to them about chemoimmunotherapy, um, you know, with consideration of rituximab maintenance. We did see at ASCO of this year a presentation on the triangle data, which was a three-arm study that looked at, um, you know, standard chemoimmunotherapy and followed by autologous stem cell transplant versus standard chemoimmunotherapy plus the BTK inhibitor ibrutinib followed by autologous stem cell transplant and then two years of ibrutinib maintenance or chemo and ibrutinib eliminate the transplant and give ibrutinib as maintenance. Um, and then rituximab maintenance was also given in some of those patients uh, when it became the standard of care. And what that trial showed is that, you know, patients benefited in both arms uh, that received BTK inhibitors as far as um, freedom from progression. So we don't have long enough follow-up to say, you know, did the transplant and BTK improve things over BTK alone, but it clearly looked like the BTK was beneficial to the patients, um, including in the arm that was transplanted alone with no BTK inhibitor. It also was clear that, you know, this eliminated the toxicities associated with transplant. I think, so to me, that data, we haven't seen a publication, but that presentation suggests that in younger patients, you know, there is for sure a role for BTK inhibitor therapy in the frontline setting. What type of chemo do you give? Um, so, so that trial was RCHOP, RDHAP. I would say that um, typically for a long time, I was using the RDHACS um, LISA regimen because it's four instead of six cycles and then patients with their transplant. Based on the Dana-Farber and um, WashU data, I actually started using BR-HIDAC 
And as um, you probably know, there's actually a frontline trial through the NCTCN looking at um, different BR HIDAC combinations in the younger patient population. Because there was a time where we, you know, we were, again, I think it was maybe the Nordic trial or something where we're like, you know, era, you know, HIDAC was very important as part of the induction regimen. Right. And so the, the DHAP includes the HIDOCYTERIDINE. Right. And I think... Um, yeah, and I, I, mean, think, I mentioned that because of the art shop that doesn't have that, so people are comfortable. Correct. So I would well, so that was our alternate alternating art shop with the yep. RD have. Yep. I want to clarify that. Okay. Yeah. So not just our shop alone, because I think it's still, you know, it still is felt for sure that if you're going to transplant somebody, that there's a benefit. You know, yep. the benefit comes with giving cytarabine in the induction right. regimen. But, think, but 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 if you're not going to transplant, um, is there a thought that we don't need the high deck? I mean, is that? I guess I'm trying to think. If you're going to transplant, you want to have a high deck induction somehow, and then go to transplant. But now with the ibrutinib, what you're saying is maybe we don't need the transplant. Maybe. Maybe we don't need the transplant. I, you know, the challenge right now is we have a, a ash presentation that looked really great. Um, we don't have a paper, and of course, we don't have an FDA approval. So that um, that's always a, a challenge in coverage. But I think that it's you know a discussion worth worth talking to the patient with. As you probably also know, they have updated the NCCN guidelines, um, and sometimes that's enough to get you where um, you yeah. need to need to for treating a patient. I would add, of course, and we're probably going to get to this, but I think, you know, the withdrawal by Brutinib kind of throws a whole new, um, yeah, you know, um, part of the equation, right? Because these studies, all our frontline studies that we have this data in, um, Shine and this have, have included Ibrutinib, and that's no longer um i mean it, it's gotten pretty complicated so i want to talk about this but i want to, before we talk about the abrutin because we really don't have, don't, don't have any control over the withdrawal yeah. of it but but i think i think in in a sense what i'm trying to what i what i want to understand is now that you have these risk stratifications for mental cell and you do some ngs here and there is there a way to know which ones you still need a transplant versus ones that you think you can use a BTKI? And if you're going to use a BTKI, uh, since we have others that have come on, you know, uh, are we able to extrapolate? I get nervous when I say extrapolate. Um, but, you know, I mean, I don't think, let's be honest, I don't think we're going to have another triangle study with the new BTKIs, yeah. right? I mean, so right. you still have to make a decision. So what I think is, I in I think the one thing that might help us, and this is still pending, and it's of course not included um, BTK. But the thing we haven't mentioned is minimal residual disease or MRD, right? We know that that can also be prognostic in mantle cell. The question is, can we use it to drive treatment decisions? And there's a large ongoing randomized trial in the U.S. looking at patients who achieve MRD negative. Um, remissions with, indu with induction therapy uh, and taking them to either transplant and rituximab maintenance or transplant. And so I think the, that question is still out there. Can we use MRD as our deciding factor to transplant or not transplant patients? The triangle study did include MRD data that has not been presented. That's not something I've seen. So that may also give us, give us some data. But my guess is that it very well might be possible that that might 
be one of our, our deciding factors, not necessarily, you know, baseline patient characteristics, but how do they respond to that induction therapy, um, you know, and, and will they still benefit from transplant? I always think like the MRD will should help me decide more along the lines of the, uh, you're right, transplant, because it's really consolidation, but then do I right. need two more years of particular therapy? Um, uh, so yes, I mean, I think that'd be wonderful if we're able to use MRD to say, you're MRD negative, we can avoid maintenance treatment and consolidation transplant. Are you able to extrapolate? Let's say you want to use the triangle. You have a patient and you use triangle. You cannot have ibrutinib. Are you able to just say, I'm going to use Xanu or Aka, Akalabrutinib, or is that like way non-academic? <laughs> <laughs> so I will, you know, this can be a touchy subject as you alluded to. Um, but, you know, I actually think that you can in this situation. So we know that BTK inhibitors have never been, you know, compared in a randomized fashion in mantle cell lymphoma, and they're never going to be. It's been done in CLL. It's been done in... Um, Waldenstrom's, um, and we we've seen toxicity differences. I think if, of course, you shouldn't also compare across phase two trials. I think that when you look at it, the the efficacy appears to be pretty similar. I don't think when you're thinking of combining with chemo that there's differences enough in the BTK inhibitors with chemo combinations that you should really see anything different as far as activity or decreased efficacy of them. So I, I do think you can extrapolate in that sense and probably not, you know, and not impact efficacy and you may see differences in safety, but they seem to have more safety, favorable safety profiles. You know, the other thing is, uh, Cami, is is that we, because we're kind of using more of these uh, big guns in the front line, it kind of puts a little bit of a, at least in my mind, a little bit of a challenge. What are you going to do in relapse disease? Because, you know, in the past, we used to use ibrutinib in relapse disease. So uh, now you're you either using ibrutinib, which obviously we know that you can't, or using another BTKI, which will put you in a kind of challenge in terms of deciding into relapse disease. I guess my question is twofold. A, are there scenarios by which you use a BTKI in the front line and you're still using a B, you can still use a BTKI in the relapse setting? Um, and if not, uh, what do you use for relapse disease nowadays? If a patient, if you use a BTK in the frontline setting and they progress on it, you cannot use another covalent BTK in the second line setting. As of February, I believe it was, the FDA approved the first non-covalent BTK inhibitor in mantle cell lymphoma, um, the pertubrutinib drug, and that can be an effective therapy option in patients who progress on the covalent BTK. For patients, I don't think we fully have an answer to that question in patients who are on a limited duration therapy, although those are more ongoing trials, right? I mean, BTK inhibitors in the relapse setting were approved and you take them as long as they're working or unless there's unacceptable toxicity. A lot of the frontline trials were also, you know, like the frontline shine trial was until progression or toxicity. 
we are seeing more and just like the triangle was a limited during induction and two years of maintenance. So if somebody progresses five years post receiving a BTK that was given in a time limited fashion, you know, there is a potential that BTK could be retried and the patient could get a response. For for the patients, you know, pertubertinib, I think, is a good option now for patients who are not candidates for a more aggressive therapy. I think the approval of the chimeric antigen receptor um, T-cell product in relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma really is where patients who are younger, um, you know, or, or candidates and have access to that is where I would go with therapy in a patient who was on a frontline BTK trial, um, because most patients at this point are going to be frontline BTK trial if they progress, right? We still don't actually have a, an approval in frontline um, mantle cell for whether you're considered transplant eligible, young, old, non-transplant. I mean, there's no no FDA approved indication in the frontline. CAR-T, like you mentioned, is probably going to be utilized more and more in the relapse disease I actually wonder, and I, I don't know the answer to this, I should look it up, but why look it up when I have you? Um, you know, in, in lymphoma, as you know, in relapsed large cell lymphoma, there's evidence that in certain situations, CAR-T is more effective than stem cell transplant. Are these? I'm not aware of these studies being done in mantle cell. Is that a question of interest to the mantle cell lymphoma community? So... So yes and no. So as you know, transplant really wasn't used very often in relapse disease, right? It was like autologous. Because, because it was used in the front line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was more consolidation in the in the frontline setting. I don't foresee that we'll ever have a, you know, consolidate with CAR-T versus um, consolidate with transplant, especially with the question, you know, that we're seeing right now, is there, it, what is the role for transplant with um you know, BTK inhibitors, yeah. is it still there? Is it a select population? I think we will see earlier studies of chimeric antigen receptor T cells, particularly in the high-risk patient population. So, you know, patients with blasto disease, TP53, high KI67, you know, and whether that be it's always hard it's hard to like say frontline CAR T because most patients are going to get something for disease control, right? Whether it be BTK or something to to bridge them to that CAR. But I think that that's certainly a patient population that we're going to move up in those high risk disease. I think the really um. I think the CAR-T question is interesting because it's certainly, you know, an effective therapy and including in different disease risks. But I just, when you, you know, there's smaller numbers, but when you look at, um, when you look at the the longer term follow-up of CAR-T and mantle cell lymphoma, I just, you know, we still are seeing later relapses, right? Which is historically what you see with all, all treatments with mantle cell lymphoma. But I wonder somehow the bispecifics, which are going to be easier to access, probably better tolerated, will also challenge CAR-T in this setting. Um, given I'm not, I'm not real clear that we can say, you know, that we're curing people with mantle cell lymphoma with CAR-T like we say with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. That was going to be a, actually a question <laughs> about whether 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 you've seen long-term remissions. I, I guess my last question to you as as we wrap up, I mean, I don't know, what is 
what is exciting you in terms of new therapies happening in the field of mental cell lymphoma? I think we talked about frontline. We did not talk much about shine. Uh, there wasn't anything novel there, but I'd like you can comment on it, obviously, because you mentioned it. Um, but anything exciting in the field of mental cell lymphoma that we should keep a close eye on? Ash is coming up, uh, as as we all know, very soon. But uh, I guess to, uh, comments on shine and then novel therapies. Yeah, comments on shine. Um, so I think my comments there are probably different than they would have been before. But before, you know, the news on ibrutinib, although um, I think the data on China, I mean, there was a there's a clear PFS benefit. That was a primary endpoint. There wasn't an overall survival benefit and there was toxicity concerns. Um, my expectation was honestly that it would still likely be approved just based on, you know, it being a positive study and historically what you would have expected um, to happen. Although even if you know, with the thought it was going to get approved, I didn't necessarily, it's not necessarily something I was thinking I would full incorporate or into my practice or recommend for everyone. I think um, the news of the ibrutinib withdrawal, so some of the questions, you know, when you look at that compared to triangle, is it the induction chemo that's a problem? Is it the age of the patients that's a problem? Is it the length of BTK inhibitor therapy? Um, or is it just a combination of all those things, which um, it very well may be? Um, I think, you know, it's a little bit bitter, bittersweet to see ibrutinib withdrawn from the market. That, when well, why you... do you think that is? That's really odd, isn't it? Like, I... I... I can't figure well, it I out. Well, I think it was shocking at first. I think, you know, when we lived through seeing, like we saw that happen, right? We saw the drug in phase one trials. We saw it right, right. succeed. We saw patients that were going to die and it saved their life. And then you, it's gone. And um, it's, it's shocking. But I think it also speaks to the progress we're making now, right? There's two second generation BTK inhibitors that are equally, um, or, you know, yeah, appear to yeah. be equally efficacious, at least, and have a better better safety profile in other randomized trials. Yeah. And I think, you know, yeah. that, as that's a, a good as thing, a company, right? you may, Yeah, as a company, you make a decision. Do you want to direct your resources there or not? Right. Um, anything exciting in the next uh, few yes. uh, months, few years? I think, as I mentioned, I think bispecifics are very exciting in mantle cell. We haven't seen, you know, uh, a plethora of data, but I think the data we've seen the most with glofitimab, um, but that looks like uh, a very efficacious agent in mantle cell lymphoma. I think it's going to be easier to combine with some of these oral therapies like the BTK inhibitors, BCL2 inhibitors. Um, so I look for that. I think the the ROR1 targeting agents, um, antibodies and antibody drug conjugates are interesting and look to see um, more data on that. I think the BTK degraders um, are are an interesting, you know, another way to, to target BTK. I think that's an interesting thing that we'll have to see how those pan out. Um, and then probably, I guess, other, you know, we saw uh, updated data on the lysocell, so other CAR-T products that um, may may have um, a little bit better or improved safety profile will also be interesting. Well, I can tell you that uh, you all are making amazing progress and uh, patients are very thankful to this. I, I never ever forget a patient with mantle cell lymphoma that I saw during my internship year um, that 
just I, I honestly never thought I would live to see that uh, there are patients you chronically you can treat like for years and and they're doing well because what I saw, I mean, it just like this is an awful disease. I mean, it was just terrible. So congratulations to all of your success, the success of your colleagues and um, Dr. Kami Medox on the Hemon Pulse. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Chadi. It was a great conversation.